we were trying to understand how to make that that sort of integration between open all these other software projects successful. And what we knew was that architecturally you had to have quite a bit of flexibility, you know, running OPA as a, as a sidecar or running as a service or whatever. So we knew that that was, that was the OPA piece. But then what we also knew was that we, we wanted a single pane of glass. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Welcome to another episode. I'm stoked today to talk to Tim Henricks. Tim, why don't you give a little introduction of, of you and your work? Yeah, uh, glad to be here. This, is, this should be a lot of fun, David. Uh, so my name is Tim Hendricks. I'm the CTO and co-founder uh, at Styra. Uh, I've been uh, at Styra. We work on authorization and policy, and I'm sure we'll go into more detail there. So I'll save you the the pitch uh, for now. But uh, but yeah, I've been working on this policy thing for about 20, 20 over twenty years now. Um, before before Styra was at VMware for a number of years too. So again, glad to be here. This should be fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll certainly get into the the founder journey, but let's talk about you know what is policy because i have to admit i got a pretty big nerd but i go on y'all site and i'm like mm, i think i kind of know what's going on but break it down like fifth grade for me yeah 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 so we'll we'll talk about policy and authorization and they're not quite the same but they're close enough and you know i think authorization is something a lot more folks um know at least a little bit about so authorization is just that problem of you know as people were always you know interacting with software systems where, you know, if I log on to my bank account, I am checking my account balance, I'm withdrawing money, depositing money. Authorization is sort of the problem of how do we, how do we control what actions I'm permitted to take? And so, you know, can I see my, my, my wife's bank account? Can I withdraw money from her account? Can I deposit money and so on and so forth? Uh, so, you know, that's, that's kind of authorization. It's kind of policy and in, in, in a short, short version. Okay. And so, Companies care about this for also internal systems, most likely, right? And so it's it's not necessarily just user facing from a customer standpoint, like the bank example. Yeah, for for sure. Yeah, I always like to actually give two examples. One is the banking one because everybody understands it, uh, but the other one is you know we do a lot of we pay a lot of attention and focus on developers too, right? Those banking applications or whatever the app is doesn't have to be banks. You know, we've got developers who are building and running those things. Well, those those developers are people too, and they're taking action. They're you know upgrading their software. They're standing up databases. They're reconfiguring the network. Authorization is important there too. Uh, and so to, between the two of them, you just got authorization uh, problems that you know enterprises companies have all over the place. How do you manage them? How do you implement them? And those are some of the problems that we help enterprises with. Right. So enterprises being very large companies trying to give access and sort of know that things are being safely done because they're being held to the fire on that. Also, I, I guess these are the types of things where you, you know, like you really want to prevent like an inside actor from having potentially access to things that they shouldn't have. 
Yeah, totally. So, you know, authorization is something you see in all sizes of companies. It's just that the biggest ones you see the most, you know, the most drive to, to address those correctly and properly. Um, and there are all kinds of reasons actually to put authorization policies in place. You know, one would be security, like you said, you know, you want to, you want to address the, the case when someone compromises, can log in as somebody else, like an attacker comes in and they log, they, you know, they, they take over the credentials. And then authorization is a is a you know defense in depth. So sure, I can log in as you know the janitor or whoever, but if I've got authorization set up correctly, then I have very few things that I can actually do because I've logged in as a janitor. Um, and so right. authorization right. is kind of that that second stage. And security is super important, but you know I also say operations. It's it's important. You know just making sure that when your developers are spinning up new resources on a Kubernetes cluster or public cloud or wherever that you know, they don't open ports that make it easier for attackers to get in, or that they make sure that they put limits that ensure that uh, their, you know, their, their applications can't accidentally you know, soak up all the resources on that node and therefore make the node, make other applications uh, perform badly. Right, and so there's like millions of variables, probably every human and system that you add to the mix, it just must be like ridiculously complicated as a, a problem to solve. Is that the core issue why you need this layer of software? Yeah, that's that's pretty much it, right? Like if you think about the fact that every piece of software on the planet's got some kind of authorization built into it today. The the challenge though, if you're a if you're a company is you've got not one of those products, you've got a thousand or fifty or whatever the number is. And each one of them has a unique way of solving authorization. And so, you know, one of the things that we aim to do at Styra is to provide that unified solution authorization of a, a single product that lets you manage all those policies, understand who has access to what, uh, and then control who has access to what through through one through one pane of glass. Right, right. So, how did you come to care to make a company about this in a in a very crowded technical space where you know, obviously, now cybersecurity is a, a huge buzzword. Now, and probably maybe wasn't as much even what, like five, 10 years ago. Well, yeah, the, you know, the origins of Styra really start back at, at VMware and maybe even earlier at Nasira. You know, at, you know, Nasira in the early days became famous for software-defined networking. But in the early days, it was really designed to be sort of a policy-based approach to networking where people would just sort of write down policies, authorization policies that say, you know, these packets can go here or they have to be waypointed through this intermediary. And eventually, uh, but but in, in any case, when after VMware acquired Nasira, uh, then we were talking to a number of the existing customers. They knew we were policy people. And the story they told us, and these were like financials or tech firms, the story they told us was, hey, we all have built internally this sort of policy management system. Why? Because we've got thousands of apps. Uh, and we don't want to do this. This is not our, <laughs> this is not our core competency. We're, we're like a bank. Like, we had to do this because we you know, had to. Uh, so if you all went off and built something, then um, then you know we we give it a, we give it a try. And so we spent some time at VMware working on on a project inside of OpenStack. And then you know maybe a year or two later, the the you know the founding team decided, hey, you know what, this is this problem is bigger than uh, bigger than OpenStack, it's bigger than VMware. It's really a problem that that really every company is going to see, regardless what technologies they're using. And so that's when we decided to to uh, found Styra and, and and the rest is history. Right. Right. So. You all worked together then at another firm and kind of ruled out. What was that experience like? Oh, it was it was sort of interesting. I mean, I, I think the when you decide to do that, 
Uh, and and P I, I've heard people do this in different ways. Like for us, we sort of just decided that this feels like a company uh, and it was a good time for all of us to you know, go ahead and, and leave the safety of a, of a bigger company and, uh, and start a company. And so we did that. We just said one day, hey, you know, well, we gave notice. We made sure that, that you know, VMware was happy with the way we're leaving and all that good stuff. But, uh, but then we left and we, you know, we, we did it full time. Uh, and, you know, when we left, we didn't have, we weren't doing it on the side at VMware. We just, you know, went ahead and left. And then, and, and I think that that was, that was good. Uh, you know, I think it was good because it made us focus. It made sure that we were committed. You know, when we went around looking for funding, we knew, you know, everybody knew you, you guys are in this. For, for real. This isn't like a hobby. This isn't something that you're kind of thinking it might work. You're, you're, you're sure. Uh, so I think and so you, you walked out the door and I mean, tell me the story. It's like, you know, okay. See you guys at the kitchen table on Monday. You're like, what, what does this actually look like? Uh, it, it was sort of close to that, right? It was like, we, how did it work? We decided to leave. We made sure that everything was good on the VMware side. And, there were, you know, we all decided to leave it. I think we founded the company like June 1st or something. So June 1st, we were all, you know, jobless effectively. And uh, we went to, I, we found out, we, we, we had found, I guess the one thing that we did was we found a, a, a little office on Castro and Mountain View, you know, next to the nail salon and the, <laughs> the massage parlor, I think, and a little strip mall, right? It was just a tiny little room. One step up from the garage is how I always like to describe it. Uh, and then, so like June first or whatever, we went to IKEA, picked out the desks, and got to work. Right? It was uh, um, that's pretty much it. Right, right. And is this like a code from scratch? You know, sort of open the proverbial IDE and just like let it rip kind of thing, or more or less. Um, like I said, we had done some work in at VMware. It was all open source, and so in the early days, we were planning on. Uh, building on top of that, I think, to some extent, or at least exploring that. And so it wasn't like, you know, we had no experience um, and nothing to start from. But in the end, we did decide to, to start something from scratch. And so, yeah, open up the open up your IDE, uh, add, create a new GitHub account, a new Twitter account and uh, and go to it. There it is. There it is. Was um, was the founding team primarily all technologists? Yeah, so for the most part, yeah. So like uh, Timu and I uh, were both like, I come from a, a long background of, of policy. Uh, you know, I did my PhD in policy languages effectively at, at Stanford. Timu came from, a, uh, he was the chief architect at Nasira. He's got a, a, a deep background in distributed systems. And so in the end, what we ended up building and designing was a distributed policy system. So you know, the two of us obviously had the had the right background for for that. And then, how did you build business folks around that? You know, because if neither of you, if both of you are sort of you know sort of technologists and architects, and you know, where does the rest of all the other things come from? Right. Um, well, it was interesting. You know, there was uh, you know we we also had um, uh, sort of a business person that founded it, it with us, uh, Pierre and. And so, yeah, he was great uh, in the sense that he understood the business. He knew how to how to sell stuff, and and that was great too. Um, and 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 then and so between the three of us, then we started, you know, doing the usual thing, you know, getting funding and and starting to hire folks after we after we had all the funding. Right, right. What um, what was getting funding like? Did did the resumes and you know sort of CVs kind of drive the ship there? I mean, you guys had good pedigree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think in large part, right? Like when you do, so we did a, a funding round before we really had a product or customers. And so when you do that, really, what, what do you have? You have 
problem space, right? We're doing authorization and policy, maybe some vision. We're going to you know, you provide a unified solution to policy and authorization. And then you've got the team. Um, so that's what you got to go, got to go and, and, you know, pitch the company around. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, we're, we're, we're envisioning this world. We know we're in this, we're effectively selling to developers in a space, uh, got tailwinds from microservices and DevOps and, and automation and cloud migration. Uh, we've got, a, you know, a, a product vision where it fundamentally requires expertise in policy and distributed systems. So, you know, we've got that kind of pedigree. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of how it works. And, and you know, one of the things I find is that as, as we went on, you know, we had more and more. We had a product and customers. <laughs> the, 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 the pitch obviously gets easier the further and further you, you get along. Right, right. And so how did you balance, you know, sort of sitting and wanting to code and build things with, uh, I got to put on a nice shirt and go stand in a boardroom? Uh, well, the, I, what I thought you were going to ask is how do you balance the need of writing, of writing code and going to talk to customers or prospects at the time? Well, and, that's important too. And users. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was, I think that was the more day-to-day challenge that at least I had, right? Because I, I had one foot in, in, in both. And so, yeah, I mean, it was the kind of thing where you just, you know, you got to talk to customers and, you know, if we're, I know we're talking to a lot of, of entrepreneurs here and, and founders. I think you got to talk to folks all the time. Uh, like, the, the, like, I think, I think somebody told me at some point, you know, a couple of years in that there were like a, a couple thousand or something that we talked to by the time we got to, you know, a couple of years in. Uh, where, you know, you just go and you pitch the company and you see how they react, uh, you know, because if you don't have a product yet, that's all you can really do. And you kind of interview them and, and chat with them. And, and that's that that takes a lot of time and you got to get them lined up. You got to talk to them. But then at the same time, obviously, you got to you got to make progress on the product. So I think that balance is hard. I, I wish I had excellent advice about how to do it other than to feel your way through. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I tell founders, you know, all the time, I was like, you know, you have to sell those initial accounts yourself. Like there's just, there's no way you're going to spend somebody else's money to go try to figure out, you know, that, that market, like you're just the one and you better feel comfortable with that in any founding role. I don't care if you're technical or business or, you know, whatever it is, like you are in the, you know, sort of one step above the garage and the phone isn't going to ring itself. I know I made that, you know, or made that discovery the hard way, you know, when I started my first company, like, you know, just because I hung up a website and, you know, sort of was there, didn't mean anybody knew that, you know, and that's how I learned what marketing was. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. No, I to- totally agree. I-, I had the same. I mean, I don't think I ever sort of expected people to just beat down the door. Right. I, I mean, I think I, w- I think I was always aware that we're going to have to go out and find people and talk to them. I mean, the other the other interesting thing about um, us, we should t- talk about a little bit is, is our open source, right? Like, uh, just because we had this open source project, we knew from the beginning that we needed open source. And, and the reason I, I bring it up now is just because what you said, you know, resonates a lot with me around open source as well. Like, you know, I think a lot of founders will think about open source as this magical thing where you create some open source code, you put it out there in the open. And then again, people will just start, you know, using it <laughs> spontaneously. Uh, but that has the same, the, the exact same property that we've been talking about, which is no, you've got to go out and, and in the early days, for sure, you know, go and talk to users and explain what it does and help them get started with it. Right. So there's like a community management component, like right from the beginning, then uh, how did you, how did you handle that? That's a whole other segment. That's not just, that's not customers. That's not product. Now you have community that you need to 
walk into. So there's there's another segment of your time. Yeah. Well, for sure. And, and you know, I think what, what we did, and I think it was, you know, for us, this sort of policy and authorization space, we always knew in the beginning that it, we had to have sort of an open source solution for expressing and enforcing these policies. That's just like, you know, you need some way of saying Alice can, you know, withdraw money from her account or Bob can configure the network in this way. You have to say that and you have to give it to the computer and the computer has to be able to like automatically enforce it. That's kind of what we what we do. So we always knew that there was a piece of that, that the language itself, the way that people actually write those policies had to be open source. And so in the early days, we had a you know, Torin who who is sometimes called Mr. Opa. That's the project's name, Open Policy Agent. So Mr. Opa, uh, he was full time on that project. Um, and so, you know, he and I spent a lot of time together. Again, I, I had one foot. Maybe I've got three feet now. I had one foot in open source and one foot in the on the on the product. But we spent a tremendous amount of time building, deploying, taught, and then building up that that community. Uh, and I think that's the only way to be successful with open source. So if anybody's listening who's thinking about it, open source is not a verb. You don't open source a project. <laughs> open source is a type of company. It's a it's a thing that you need to commit to. It's got to be part of your DNA. So uh, and so for us, it was it was crucial, and and um, I think it's gone pretty well. That makes me want to ask, you know, there's a lot of changes in the open source world now and, you know, sort of people just becoming disillusioned and important projects getting abandoned and, you know, I'm, I'm not getting paid or, you know, I don't have a commercial model and people are building big cloud companies off my back. I'm just curious how that lands in a world where, you know, you guys are like squarely in that space. Oh, uh, plenty of good questions there or comments. Anyway, um, uh, I'll say a few things here. One of which is, you know, for us, I, like I said, I, I have no doubt that that for us to be successful, we had to open source OPA. Like this is a, it's a language we want it to be um, embraced by, you know, every piece of software on the planet. That's kind of what we're hoping, right? Is that there's a unified way of, of implementing authorization, of enforcing authorization everywhere. And so we knew it had to be open source. We also knew that, you know, the domain was one where we wanted a bunch of the community members to help drive it because you know we're not experts in every piece of software on the planet. Of course, um, we needed a bunch of folks that could help you know mold uh, mold the future of, of that project. So for us, it was just not even a, a question. In terms of the other things, especially when you're in a in a space like we are, where you're trying to sell to developers or engineers, you know people that that you know use and build software all the time. I think you absolutely either have to have an open source offering or you have to have a freemium version of your of your product and, and service. There, this this group of folks is just too too hands on. They want to use your software um, in some way, shape, or form to even evaluate before they'll even necessarily talk to you. So you know, it, are there potential downsides with open source where you know some big cloud provider could take it and use it? <clears throat> sure. But I think you need to think about that when you're designing your product strategy, when you're designing how your open source and your commercial offerings work together so that you just like, because what we did, we just assumed that all the cloud providers would pick up and, and use OPA. And actually, that's what, we're, what we've seen today. We see, you know, every Kubernetes vendor, just about every Kubernetes vendor is is, in, is embedding OPA to do admission control for their, for their Kubernetes offerings. Um, so we just assumed at the beginning that that would happen. And so we're, we weren't worried. In fact, we're excited anytime somebody picks up and uses uses our offering. And so then what you what the way we kind of think about it is, well, how much energy, how much of your IP, so to speak, goes into open source versus versus your commercial offering? And you just need to make sure that there's enough of a gap there. 
that that you feel good about, you know, people picking up and using your open source offering, regardless how they use it. Right. It kind of sounds to me like the strategic foundation or like ecosystem is the part that ought to be open sourced. And then you build commercial offerings that make that more powerful and maybe more applicable to the customer set. Yeah. And make it easier to use. Like for, like for us, we sort of look at it as the open source and the commercial product kind of go hand in hand. They're synergistic, but they're independent. So Opal works all by itself, right? Our open source, it works all by itself. There's just a bunch of stuff that's out of scope. Like for example, what we'll often see people doing is let's say you're building an application and you're, you've broken that thing into microservices. So you've got, you know, hundreds of pieces of software that are all interacting through APIs. If you want to put authorization in place, you might use OPA, um, at least in part, and you might say, hey, I'm going to use OPA and I'm going to run it. Architecturally, what you want to do is you want to run it next to each and every one of those hundred pieces of, of software that you have, hundred microservices. So you've got a hundred instances of OPA. Uh, and you do that because you want the, the authorization responses to be fast and highly available, right? So there are architectural reasons you want to do that. Um, uh, but then what that what that sort of begs the question of is like, well, how do you manage all the policies? How do you manage all those hundred or hundreds of OPAs that are running everywhere on the, on the globe? Well, that's where Styr's commercial product comes in. It's, it's that control plane. It's that management plane. It gives you that single pane of glass to, to, to control and understand what's going on with all those OPAs. So in that sense, you see there's an architectural separation between the two. Did you plan that on purpose? Like, was that the business strategy? Like, we so were like, we want to make the language and then we want to be the thing that manages because like, it's almost like the way to use OPA is to make it all over the place and hard to manage. And then we have the thing that makes it easy to manage, but we can sell that. I mean, was that like an open thought process while you were strategizing the business? We, we didn't think about making OPA hard to manage. That wasn't part of the... No, I get but, that. But, I get the, that. but the separation, yes, absolutely. Right. That was like, you know, when we set the, when we set out to, to do the, we knew the language had to be open source. We were trying to understand how to make that, that sort of integration between open, all these other software projects successful. And what we knew was that architecturally you had to have quite a bit of flexibility, you know, running OPA as a, as a sidecar or running as a service or whatever. So we knew that that was, that was the OPA piece. But then what we also knew was that we, we wanted a single pane of glass. So you wanted both of them. You wanted this physically distributed way of enforcing these policies, but you wanted a logically centralized way of managing them, if that makes sense. So anyway, that was the design of the, 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 the software. That was the design for, author, for the authorization solution. And then it was a, it was a fairly easy thing to realize that, that the OPA piece, that the, the data plane needed to be open source. So from that day one, has it grown, evolved, and turned into exactly what you guys thought day one in the office? Or has there been, you know, pivots or surprises or like, oh, we didn't think of that? It's gone more or less the way we had hoped. I, I don't, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm sure there are little things that, that changed along the way, right? Yeah, I think it's more or less gone, gone the way we, we thought. I think one of the things we didn't maybe anticipate in the early days was was how much expertise we could actually embed into the commercial product. So we always had this, you know, vague idea like, okay, we've got OPA open source at the at the edge. You know, there are lots of those co copies of that piece of software. And there's one sort of what we call the declarative authorization service. I don't think I mentioned that. So the DAS, which is the, the the control plane. But I think what one of the things we learned over time was that to make the 
uh, the, 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 this DAS piece had a couple of roles. It's not just sort of managing all the OPAs. It's not just distributing policies and recording the decisions and watching for status updates. That DAS, to make it really easy for a bunch of organizations, we realized that we could bake a bunch of like our expertise for how you set up and write policies for, let's say, microservice authorization into the app, into DAS. And we would bake, we ended up baking a bunch of knowledge and expertise about how you run and implement Kubernetes authorization into DAS. And we baked a bunch of information about Terraform into DAS and so on and so forth. So, um, so now when, a, when somebody comes to, to our commercial offering, you know, we kind of ask them, hey, what, what kind of authorization are you trying to put in place? And then we've got, you know, dedicated like built-in tutorials. It's like, here's how you do it. We've got pre-built policies for, the, for those that, that make sense. And so, you know, we've just, you know, gone further and further down that road of making it super easy for people to solve the, the authorization problems at the end of the day that they care about. Uh, whereas in the beginning, I think it was more, we're more focused on sort of managing the OPAs. And that was sort of the problem statement that we put on the website. And I think instead now we're moving more toward, hey, you just got authorization problems or policy problems and we've got solutions and, you know, pick the one that we've built and, and you're off and running. It sounds like you could use that kind of strategy to bake more of the value chain like into your product versus having to have some kind of like a a var distributed network and you got to have a bunch of consulting companies that can sort of take care of your your thing for you like the product leads the growth then yeah i mean that's, that's what we're what we're driving toward we're driving toward this idea that Da, the DAS as a whole, it, it, if you don't know anything about OPA, if you know, if you know OPA and you're using OPA, great. It helps you manage OPA. If you don't know anything about OPA, then yeah, like out of the box, we give you, you know, three lines that you run to install OPA wherever, you know, you need it to be. Uh, based, of, of course, on your, on the, what we call the use case or the, you know, the type of authorization that you care about. And then, yeah, it's sort of an end, it's several end to end solutions sort of all wrapped up into one. So yeah, absolutely. We, you know, trying to make that product as self contain uh, as we can and make it as easy for folks to get up and running as, as quickly as they can. So what are the most important things that have absolutely zero to do with technology for, for what you guys have done? Most important things that have absolutely nothing to do with technology. <laughs> well, I'm the CTO. I only think about technology. <laughs> no. Um, you know, I think there are a bunch of interesting things that, you know, uh, that any founder would, uh, would run into. So I'll try to come up with a few here. I think one, you know, is, is hiring and growing the company itself, right? And nothing to do with tech. It's just, and, and it's an obvious thing, like you've got to grow the company, but, but I think until you've actually gone through and, you know, especially as a founder and sort of grown it from, from zero to, you know, where, where we're at, we're at, you know, 75 you know, employees today. I think, um, I think that was one of the biggest things that I've learned in this, in this process is, you know, that the tech is fine. Yes. You're learning a lot about users and exactly what kind of features they need to be successful that all I think I expected. I think what I, I didn't expect as much was how much I'd learn about, you know, all the different functions within a, within a company, right? If, if you're like me and, you know, I was at VMware for a number of years, like I, I was a software engineer and I saw basically software engineering and product management and, you know, there are the other functions that existed. I knew, but, but do you really know what, what they do day in and day out? Um, and so one of the things I certainly learned is, is a bunch of the other functions that, that exist. And, and, and I've learned it through, you know, in two ways. One is like as a founder, you know, we didn't have marketing at the beginning. And so who built the website? Who went out and you know, sent emails to 
prospects that, you know, I, and that was, that was the founding team, right? I, I did that. And so did I do it? Well, probably not. Right. But, but you, you kind of learn and you're like, okay. And at some point you're like, okay, now I kind of understand more about what the marketing function entails. And then of course, then eventually, and that's useful because then you hire somebody that knows what they're doing. And, um, and then you talk to them and you work with them. You're like, oh, I see. Now I, I really do understand, you know, a little bit of you tried it yourself. And then later you see someone who is an expert. Yeah. You could say the same thing about finance, operations, customer success, sales, you know, all kinds of stuff. I love that you just said that, by the way, like technical founders, please pay attention to this because I can tell you that those of us in sales and marketing really don't like when you try to control sales and marketing because it's a whole different you know, discipline. So like, we will be glad to help you. <laughs> yeah. And for sure. And just to be clear, I just picked marketing as an example. I totally agree. All, all the functions within the company. It's a good example. Yeah. It's a good example. Yeah. And finance is another place that I see people really struggle to, I mean, it's just a whole different science to, you know, how to, how to manage proper accounting controls and, and, uh, you know, financial metrics for a business. People tend to, um, take that down the road and make it real messy before uh, hiring a pro. So it's another place I recommend. Yeah. All, all, and all kinds of jargon that I'm learning, like, you know, engineering has all kinds of jargon. <laughs> I've learned all kinds of jargon too about finance. I, 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 I've not had to um, do the finance myself, but I'm seeing it, you know, next to, to just seeing those things come out. I'm like, what is that? What's an ARR? Okay. Got it. Fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> Eventually. Just like everybody else going, what's an OPA? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's got to be a TLA for everything. Right, 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 right. <laughs> uh, no, that's awesome. I appreciate that. And what have you learned to do, having to have teams and like people under you? You know, there's this whole like leadership and sort of culture and all this stuff that happens with, and as a founder, you don't get a choice to, you know, sort of turn your head from that. Like your, your name and your, you know, personal reputation is all tied to it in a way that like, if you were an employee, you would get to sort of go, not my jam. I just need to be a good manager. Right. 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 Yeah. Well, yeah. Culture, culture, super important. And I, I definitely remember in the early days where we're, we're, you know, we were talking about what should our culture be? How do we, or, or, or you know, it, it, it's kind of, it always bothered me to say, well, what do we mean we're writing down our culture? Don't we just live our culture? We are, you know, we embody it. You, but then at some point, I think somebody made the, the good distinction that, we can document our culture, right? And I think that's a that's a very reasonable thing. So that people coming in have something to some some guideposts to have a sense as to what the what the culture is and what the expectations are about how everybody you know thinks and talks and, and behaves. But but it's but it, you know I, especially as we've grown, I've seen how how important it is. And you know I think for us that that the the cultural aspect of things, I think we've we've done we've we've succeeded in that one pretty well. You know. Uh, you know, we're, we're big on, and, and some of this stems from sort of not just our personalities, but also the, the, the folks, the users, the prospects, the customers that we're acting with and, and what, you know, the founding team, but also the, our customers and users all, you know, were sort of technical folks, at least a lot of us. And so what we want to understand, we want to understand things. And so that's super important. So when we're interacting with our customers and users, you know, we, we try to become trusted advisors. We try to become, Hey, you know, we work on authorization policy all day, every day. We're just going to give you, you know, a lowdown, the lowdown on how stuff works. And, you know, um, we'll help you help educate you, for lack of a better term, on, you know, what we know. 
And we're happy to work with you to, to, to learn more about what your issues are and so on and so forth. And so from our cultural point of view, we've tried to instill that uh, as well internally, where everybody in the company needs to be in the mindset that I don't know everything I need to learn and I need to teach what I know so that we can disseminate that knowledge, right? Um, just so just an example of of how you know the, and that was just what how the you know the founding team comes you know team and I come from from academia, and so like that was just inherent in in who we were when we came in. But then it's also incredibly valuable for for us to do externally. So you you bring that culture in, you um, it helps you both externally as well as I would argue internally. Right, right. I like the knowledge management and write it down paradigm because I think a lot of people, especially in hyper growth mode kind of don't do that. And then you end up sort of once you're out of your friend zone with your, you know, staff, as it grows to a certain point, there are no guideposts there unless you have taken the time to record videos, write it down, think about the way we make decisions. What are our core values? And it's the kind of stuff where you kind of go like, no matter when you do it, it feels too soon to do it until it feels way too late. You know? Yeah. 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 I, I'd agree. I'd agree with that. Yeah. And yeah, I think the other thing that you kind of touched on there that amplifies that is that, yeah, as a, as a founder in the early days, you, you, you know, everything that's going on, <laughs> you're probably doing half of it or third or whatever, you know, the number is. Um, so it's very easy. Like the culture just sort of it is who you are and how you, you think you things want to be. But as you grow, you quickly get to the point where the, the reason you're growing is that you can't do it all. You can't know it all. And so you've got to trust the rest of your team. And so very quickly, that then turns into them hiring people without you having talked to them. And then how do you make sure that the people that come in are going to work well with what you think the with how you think the company needs to behave? And so, yeah, if you haven't documented, if you haven't trained those people or if they don't, they haven't figured out um, the people in the company, how they need to behave, then it's 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 not going to the culture is going to change very, very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I told you at the beginning, I'd like to have everybody put on your futurist hat, you know, at the end of the the episode and kind of what should our B2B audience of all sorts of people have on their radar for like the next two years, you know, just like, don't miss this. Uh, well, there are a number of things. Um, two years futuristic, huh? That's, that's not sci-fi. Maybe we should do a two year one and a 50 year one. <laughs> well, that's right. I'm yeah. I, I'm, I, I enjoy futurist, uh, you know, novel reading and such, yeah, but, uh, you know, like change is fast, right. man. In two years is a big, Hey, look back to two, 2020, yeah. two years is That's fast. true. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I, I think over the next couple of years, um, I, I think we'll see all of this movement that we're already seeing around how people build software just continue, right? There's going to be more people putting stuff onto the cloud. There's going to be more software systems doing things automatically in that in that developer process and outside of it, right? Like we're seeing, you know, self-driving cars and we're seeing all kinds of, of automation generally yeah, throughout throughout um, throughout the world. But but especially in software development, I think we're going to see more and more of that. And I think we'll see better and better software come out. And, but then the thing that's relevant to me is that I think what we'll also see is more and more attention paid to sort of automating security kinds of checks, right? So whether it's data privacy, like, yeah, sure. Like I, I want to make sure that, you know, my, my, my data is out there all, all the time and, and how many vendors hands, but, but I want to make sure that it's never used. It's never sold to third parties or whatever. So I think that we're, well, from a personal point of view, I'll want automated security controls and protections in place around my data and how all of that automation is using that data. 
Um, and then in this sort of developer space, the same thing holds true, which is uh, we want developers running as fast as they can and building software as fast as they can. But again, what we want uh, are those those security compliance, you know, those 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 automated checks to make sure that people as well as machines are all you know behaving the way they want. And moreover, I think in both those cases, I want to be able to as a consumer, I want to be able to understand what those checks and balances are. Like I want to be able to read them. I don't want to just trust some neural net that's like, oh, I I sold your data because this this you know this node it was a 0.7 and this other one was a 0.3 or something that's completely unintelligible. I, I I do want to see the I do want to be able to read you know what the constraints are on on how you use my data, how you spin up new resources um, on, on on the cloud. Awesome. Hey Tim, thanks so much for uh, coming out. The uh... Insights were interesting. I always, always love hearing from different functional perspectives, and I've certainly not been a CTO. So, <laughs> well, I've only been a CTO. Appreciate what you guys are doing. <laughs> I've only been a CTO, and this was fun. Yeah. If anybody wants to uh, reach out to you, what's the best channels to do that? Yeah, definitely check out the Styro webpage, styro.com. Uh, oh, by the way, you can sign up for free software if you want to do that too. I, I advocate for that. Um, and then uh, hit me up on uh, you know LinkedIn or, or Twitter. Both of those are, are great. Fantastic. Hey, thanks for coming out. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.